Well, you know what? We only have five sessions left, including this one. <laughs> I just don't think we're going to make it all the way through First Corinthians. Maybe I won't get to the part where it says, let the women keep silent in the churches. <laughs> so that, whew, that'll be a relief. No, I guess I'll have to address all the hard passages, baptism for the dead, and all the tough stuff. But I'll, uh, I'll decide what choice passages to treat uh, in the time that remains. So this morning, we'll, we'll finish chapter 1 and look a little bit further, maybe, time permitting. We'll start in chapter 1, verse 18. Paul has already said that Jesus Christ did not send him to do the baptizing, although bringing people into the kingdom is by baptism, and so it's important. That's why he brings it up right here at the beginning. But he says he was supposed to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, not using rhetorical, persuasive abilities. And you know, this is, uh, we want to get around this. I guess I've got this in the right place. But, you know, the great preachers are often great rhetoricians, and yet Paul says, it's not your ability with rhetoric. It's not your ability to sway a crowd because people get home and they're unswayed. <laughs> you know, you get over that swayness. Um, you, you need to just say the facts. Just tell the facts. Uh, whenever I have an opportunity to speak to young men heading into the pastorate, I say, you know, if you want to learn to preach, just open the Bible and go through a passage and make a few applications. What people need is direct exposure to the text of the Bible. You need to bring them face-to-face -face with the mind of Christ as it's presented in the text. They don't need, you know, an opening story and a closing poem and all the rest of it. Now, if you've got real skills along those lines, fine. But if you don't, don't sweat it. Your job is to bring people face-to-face -face with Jesus as he's manifested in the mirror of Scripture. So you want to get yourself out of the way as much as possible. Uh, that doesn't mean being dull. It just means being direct from the Bible and not worrying about rhetoric. And Paul seems to be saying that here. Of course, this brings, him, this brings Paul close to Moses, who said, I'm not skilled at speech. And Paul says the same thing. Uh, several times he says, you know, people say I'm not real good as a speaker. Uh, so, you know, we seem to be being told something there about what's really important. And also he's going to say, not with not with apologetical uh, skill, not with the ability to the go, go to the Greeks and say, yes, uh, you guys have got it halfway right, and if we just continue to reason along these lines, you can reason your way into the faith. We well, you know what happens if you persuade somebody to become a Christian by reasoning with them. They can be persuaded right back out by somebody being reasonable with them. And there is, no, there is no apologetical argument for the Christian religion that can't be counterfeited. There is no surefire proof. Well, I can say this. There is an absolute surefire proof for the truth of Christianity. And that proof is going to be seen on the day of judgment. But the human heart, made in the image of God, is infinitely deceitful. I remember a few years ago, among all my Vantillian brethren, um, 
They came up with the transcendental argument for God. This was the killer argument. Nobody could reply to this one. And uh, there was a great debate between Greg Bonson and a couple of atheists, and he pulled this one out, and they had never heard it before, and they were just, you know, pools of blood on the floor by the time he was done with him, and we all felt pretty good. And a year later, these guys came back with the transcendental argument for no God. And if you're honest about it, it was just as good. You know, when you consider it by itself as an argument, we're saved by faith, folks. We're not saved by reason. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Ultimately, what Dr. Van Til was saying is you can cast down all those strongholds, but the bottom line, you got to tell them about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. And God the Holy Spirit is either going to cause them to believe it or he's not. Uh, not all my friends like it when I say that, but I feel like that has to be said. You know, twenty uh, a thousand years from now, somebody may come up with an even better killer argument. You know, for the truth. But what will happen is that the deceitful, wicked human mind will just reach down even further and come up with a killer argument on the other side. We're not going to win the argument because it's not a matter of argument. It's a matter of proclamation. And that's what Paul is getting at here. So in verse 18, uh, he says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. The word is moron. Moran. <laughs> Moron. It's moronic. The word of the cross to those who are perishing is moronic. But to those who are being saved, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's powerful. It's interesting, you know, we want to think that just pulling out a sword and being powerful is not the way the kingdom comes. But in a sense it is. It's powerful language that shatters human beings. God spoke the universe into existence, didn't he? And when God spoke at Mount Sinai, the sound was so amazing that the ground shook and everybody fell to the ground and covered their ears and said, oh please, this is too much. It's killing us to listen to this sound of God's voice. Let Moses go up and listen. Let him die. We'll send him up, okay? We don't like him anyway. Let him go up and hear the word of God. Because God's speech changes the world. Well, what's amazing now, folks, is look, what is that gift of tongues on Pentecost about? Except that God has given that same speech to us. And if we talk right, we can destroy the world. Sounds good to me. You talk right and this mountain will fall apart. What are you, great mountain? You'll become a plain. You, if we talk right, and that, that means a number of things. One thing it means is we have to be unified. When the people are unified, nothing will stand against them. And Paul is concerned about these Corinthians because they're divided. As a result, they can't talk with power. But if they get united and their speech is united, blam! It's like a hydrogen bomb. It changes the world. Language has power. really does. You know, if you say to your child, Johnny, you're an idiot. I wish I had never had you. You think that'll make a difference in Johnny? He'll never forget it, and it'll destroy his life. Okay? Words have power. I hope nobody hears his name Johnny, and I didn't have you in mind when I said that. <laughs> it's just an example. 
Okay? If you say to your wife, you know, I, I wish I'd never married you. That's it. I mean, words have power, and those are just little instances. Okay? That is this business of being given all knowledge and being given all speech. Because the speech changes things. This word of the cross is power to those who are, we would say, elect in our tradition, those who are being saved, and it's moronic to those who are not. Now, he starts by talking about the cross. Now, last night I told you that the gospel is the word about the resurrection and enthronement of Jesus. And in Corinthians, he's going to start with the cross, and he's going to end with the resurrection. So there's a balance in the book here with his themes. But you can't have resurrection without death. And in particular, you can't have the resurrection without having the cross. And there's something about the cross, the nature of the death here, which shatters the world and which has to come before resurrection. And so we've got to talk about what this power of the cross is. And we're so used to the cross, I mean, we wear them around our neck and everything, that uh, what what is it, you know? Those of you who watched the movie last night, what was the very first thing you saw in the movie? You saw a cross, okay, lighting up in the windows in New York City, uh, telling us that this whole movie is, uh, is a reflection on what is happening to the Reformation and its collapse in our civilization. All right, so he says, the word of the cross... And then he says in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Let's stop and talk about that just for a minute. First of all, why does he say, where is the wise man? Well, we know what a wise man is. You know, one of those philosopher types. Where is the scribe? We think of a scribe, rightly, as somebody who knew how to read and write. But you have to understand that in the ancient world, not all that many people knew how to read and write. They didn't need to. There weren't any books. We have all these books around today. The only reason that you have books is because 200 years ago, paper and ink became cheap to produce as a result of the Industrial Revolution. Without the Industrial Revolution, paper was very expensive and ink was expensive. It was dear. Now, you had the printing press from Gutenberg, but that didn't make paper cheap and it didn't make ink cheap. It made books considerably cheaper because they didn't have to be written out by hand anymore, but they were still pretty expensive. Now we got books all over the place. Of course, print is dead, and now we have the Internet. But uh, in the ancient world... Books were very expensive. They had to be copied out by hand, copied out on vellum or papyrus, which were expensive to produce, or even carved into uh, clay tablets. Gee. And you wonder why the Bible is written in such a compact way with these chiasms and all that. That's so that you could stuff a lot of information into a small amount of space. And to be a scribe was to know how to pick up all kinds of numerical stuff in the text, like 153 fish, being the triangular of 17, and all the other stuff that that involves, or the word shishak being the word babel spelled backwards up and down the alphabet using the using at-bash as a form. You know what that is? In Jeremiah, Babylon is called shishak. Well, that's the 
The first two letters of the first letter of the alphabet is B. Second letter of the alphabet is B. Babel is if you run the alphabet this way. Well, in Hebrew, you run it this way. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, Hey. Babel. If you start at the back of the alphabet, the second from the end letter is Shish, is Shen. Shishak is Babel spelled with the alphabet running backwards. This is called Atbash. Everybody's always known this. Calvin mentions it. You know, I'm not telling you anything new or strange here. It may sound like it's deep weird, but it's just common, ordinary weird. Okay? <laughs> but you see, a scribe knows stuff like that. An ordinary person doesn't. A scribe is somebody like a Ph.D. in nuclear physics. So when you read about scribes in the Bible, you're you're reading the really highly educated people who can read and write and read and write at this very deep and profound, skillful level. You know, how many of you think you could sit down right now and write yourself a Beethoven symphony? You've listened to Beethoven symphonies. How many of you think you could sit down and write one? See, it's a little bit different, okay? And we can read the Bible and we can see these gigantic chiastic structures and everything, but the skill to be able to write stuff like that takes a whole lot of training and development. And then you can write, you know, the Jacob narrative, and it can start with A and go all the way down to Q and come back out to A with matching chiastic things all the way up and down and have all these themes that repeat and then have underlying themes that run through. What we call typology is the musical character of the Bible, where you hear the same themes repeated over and over again, maybe in a different key, maybe faster or slower, but they're musical themes. The Spirit sings the Scripture into existence, repeating these musical themes over on top of one another. Well, the scribes knew what they were doing, but boy, it took a lot of skill and training to get to that point. So, scribes... You know, these are the these are the top guys. You know, they're the Nobel Prize winners. The wise men, the scribes, the debater of this age. Paul says, forget it. God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. Now another comment I want to make about that is <clears throat> we go back to the wisdom part of the Bible, which is the kingly literature. The literature that Solomon probably wrote. Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He probably wrote the Song of Solomon. And I would argue that he wrote the book of Job. Because there's a lot of common sections between Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. All of these are kingly literature. They all deal with what it's like to be a king. King dies for his people. That's what Job is about. Job is a book that's about a national disaster. I, I know some of you know this, but in case you don't, Job is the king of his land. It says so. It says he's a melech. His three friends who come to see him are not his three buddies and pals that he plays golf with. King's friend is a title of the king's chief counselor. These are his three mighty men. These are the three other cornerstones of his nation. David has his three mighty men. Jesus has Peter, James, and John. Daniel has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king and his three mighty men form the four corners of his nation, with the king as the chief cornerstone. Job is the chief cornerstone, and these other three guys are the chief, three number one officials in his kingdom. And this whole book is about a national disaster because, you know, when the raiders come in and they kill all the men, there's widows everywhere. When all the f- crops are destroyed by meteorites, there's people starving everywhere. Okay, this is, this is a, a national problem. In the book of Job, <clears throat> we can read it about an individual person suffering, okay, 
But we need also to be aware that it's kingly literature and it's about a national crisis. Now, all this kingly wisdom literature is said by the scholars to have been written about the same time that there's an international wisdom literature being produced. The Egyptians were producing wisdom literature, and the other nations were producing wisdom literature. And we're told that you can that the Jewish, the Israelite wisdom literature that was being produced in the time of Solomon during the time of the kings is very much like the wisdom literature of the nations. And we can find all kinds of parallels between them. Well, I'm here to say Paul disagrees. Paul says all that wisdom literature that was produced in the pagan world is bunk. It may have some superficial similarities to the wisdom that's found in the Bible, but it comes in a different context, and therefore it doesn't mean the same thing. You want wisdom, you start with the fear of God. And for that to be true, you've got to get the right God. And you need to be worried about him. You know, when the father calls the little kid who has done something wrong into the room, oh, you know, you did something wrong. You slapped your sister in the face and you called her a skunk. And then daddy comes home and he hears about it. And he's sitting in the living room and he says, Mark, I'd like to see you. Mark comes to the door and Fear of daddy is the beginning of wisdom here. <laughs> he doesn't really want to run away, but he's not sure if he wants to come into the room or not. Mark, come over here. Mark, come here. Finally, Mark gets over to his daddy. You shouldn't have slapped your sister right. Yes, sir. I'm going to have to spank you. Yes, sir. Bend over. Yes, sir. Spank, spank. Then he gets a hug, gets a kiss, and everything is fine. All right? That's how God deals. Yeah. That's how God deals with us, okay? That's what fear of God means. It doesn't mean you're afraid and you run away. It means you're afraid, but you want to be close to Him, but you're a little bit nervous. But then He says, Come on, come on, come on, come on. Don't be afraid. If I spank you, it'll only hurt for a minute. You want to be spanked and have it hurt for a minute, or you want to have it hurt forever and ever and ever and ever in hell? No, I think we'll take a we'll take a short, quick spank. And you young people, it's a whole lot of better to be spanked when you're young than when you grow up. I've known a lot of men who were never spanked when they were kids. And when they grew up, they did things that resulted in them being spanked real hard. And uh, take the spankings when you're young. If your folks spank you, then praise God. Because uh, it's a lot better to be spanked when you're young than when you're old. I'm better for your mom and dad to spank you than for God to have to spank you through the circumstances of life. Well, I don't know how I got onto that, but it's valuable information. <clears throat> I was talking about the context of wisdom, you see. The wisdom in the pagan world may look wise, but it's not. And Paul has given us just a plain hermeneutical rule here. If you want to understand Israelite wisdom literature, look back at the book of Moses and look back at Genesis and read Leviticus and learn who God is, and then you can understand Israelite wisdom literature. Forget about what the Egyptians were writing at the same time. I don't care how many love poems they wrote. The Song of Solomon is not a specimen of erotic love poetry in Israel. 
It's an allegory of Yahweh and his people, where the king is presented as a, as a temple in architectural language, and the bride is presented as the land. Now, you can apply it to, you know, marriage, but it primarily uses all the temple symbolism, and it's talking about the temple as a place where God meets his people. And the church has always been right to understand that it's applying to Christ and, and the church. Well, I don't want to get off onto that, but <clears throat> I'm right. Um, and you see, this is an example of what happens when you start with Egyptian literature and you say, this is like an Egyptian love poem. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's using all the symbolism that's already been set up in the earlier part of the Bible and, the, and in the building of the temple to talk about the Lord and his people. Uh, that's why Solomon comes across the desert in a chariot in a big cloud of wind, because he's like Jehovah coming in his chariot of wind. Obviously, I'd rather talk about Song of Solomon, but we've got to talk about 1 Corinthians, where the women are told to keep silent in the churches. <clears throat> I, don't, I hear women laughing out. You, know, you women are not supposed to laugh. I guess I'm really going to have to deal with that passage now, aren't I? Well, he says that the wise people of, you know, of the secular world are not wise. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. He has turned it to be moronic. God has made moronic the wisdom of the world, of the age. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was wise. God's wisdom confounded the wisdom of the world. God was well pleased through the foolishness, through the moronicness of the message preached to save those who believe. Okay? Salvation comes through preaching, not through argumentation. And it appears to be moronic to those who were hearing it for the first time. Verse 22, for indeed the Jews ask for signs. They want somebody like Moses who's going to come along and do a bunch of miracles. And Jesus says the only sign you get is the sign of Jonah, uh, which has to do with death and resurrection and other things, and going to the Gentiles. Jonah, you have death and resurrection, and then you have Jonah going to the Gentiles. That's the sign. That's the only sign. The Greeks search for wisdom. That is what they call wisdom. But, of course, the wisdom in the Bible isn't recognized as such by them. He says we preach, we don't argue, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block. Now, it's not that Jesus is crucified that's a stumbling block. It's the preaching of it that's a stumbling block. The preaching of Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and is moronic to the Gentiles. Okay, we've got to come back to that. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, the true wisdom. Because the foolish thing, now your Bible may say the foolishness of God, but more accurately, it's the foolish thing. This is a substantive adjective, <laughs> for those of you who care about that stuff. The foolish thing of God is wiser than men, and the weak thing of God is stronger than men. What does he mean by the foolish thing of God? God's foolish thing and God's weak thing. He means Jesus. Okay? Jesus is God's foolish thing. Jesus, the foolish thing of God, is wiser than men 
And Jesus, the weak thing of God, is stronger than men. Okay? What about this paragraph here? Well, it's the cross, he says, that's an offense. How is the cross an offense? Well, we can say certain things about that. You know, the Messiah, the Jews expected the Messiah to come and to rule the world quite properly. And the idea that the Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, that's all the same word, Christ, Messiah, anointed one, the fact that he would die under the, under the Romans, die under Herod, why, that's, that's a stumbling block in a sense. That's not what the Messiah was supposed to do. But that's not really quite enough, actually. Any Jew who read his Old Testament knew that the Messiah was going to have to die. He knew it because way back in Genesis 3, it said the seed of the woman would have his foot crushed by the serpent. Although he would crush the serpent's head, his foot would be bruised by the serpent. And following on, we would find that the son of Abraham, Isaac, is supposed to die, and Isaac says, I and uh, Abraham says, I and my son will go yonder, and we will return. So Paul in Hebrews, or Priscilla in Hebrews, says Abraham knew that Isaac was going to be resurrected. And any other Jewish person reading the Old Testament would know that. Abraham knew that he was going to put Isaac to death, that Isaac would be resurrected, and that we will return to you. Well, it turns out that Isaac is not good enough, so we have an animal substitute. But from that time forward, every Hebrew Israelite Jew knows that the Messiah who comes to save the world is going to have to die, and that the animals are only substitutes for human sacrifice. That's why the animals who are put on the altar are called sons. They're called a son of the herd, a son of the turtle dove. It's the son who has to die for the sins of the fathers who lean their hand on their son and send their son to die in their place. Everybody should know this. So the idea that the Messiah is going to have to die and be raised again is not should not by itself necessarily be a scandal to the Jews. It ought not to be so surprising. There's something a little bit more involved in the cross that goes beyond these expectations. And I'm going to try to uncover a little bit of what it is. I'm not sure I can do a totally good job. So for the Jews, yes, uh, the idea that the king they expected to come would be crucified, um, that's that's a stumbling block, but there's a little, there's got to be a little bit more to it than that because Nicodemus and every other educated Jew knew that the Messiah was going to have to die and then be resurrected. It's right there in Genesis 22. They've known it for almost 2,000 years. And the cross is is moronic as far as the Gentiles are concerned. Now here we have to become Gentiles for a minute, okay? So let's become Gentiles, and let me remind you of some stories, okay? What is the cross? The cross, when Jesus was crucified, the cross refers to the bar, okay, that he carried on his back. Jesus, it says, was nailed to a tree. I think he was nailed to a tree. I think he was nailed to a tree uh, in on the Mount of Olives, okay? I don't think the Roman soldiers went around cutting down trees, 
turning them into telephone poles, digging holes, sticking them in, and putting people up on them when there are all these perfectly good trees around they can nail people to. That's what they usually did. Where was Jesus crucified? Gaul. What does Golgotha mean? Whose skull? What? Goliath's skull. And where did David put Goliath's skull? On the Mount of Olives. Okay. Golgotha. So that's probably, you know, if we put all that together, that, that gives us a very likely place where Jesus was crucified. All the important things happened on the Mount of Olives. In the, in the temple, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies was made of olive wood. And this, all this olive, Mount of Olives stuff has to do with the Holy of Holies and the olive tree. That's a whole other thing. But, see, out there on the Mount of Olives, you can look straight down into the temple and perceive when the veil is rent and all the chaos happening that's going on there, which is also true. And how do I get off onto that? Well, my point is, what we call a cross, you know, this is probably not exactly what Jesus was nailed on, but it's a perfectly good symbol of it, okay? And the Gentiles have the same thing. You have crossroads. And crossroads are where the north and the south and the east and the west meet. And so, therefore, any crossroads is the center of the world, symbolically. All right? There may be a crossroads out here, and there may be one out here. But if you assign it this meaning, a crossroads is the center of the world. It's the belly button of the world. It's the navel of the world. You can use these different words. Who do you see at the crossroads? Who's there? You probably have one in your house. Where does your cat like to be? Where he can see down the hall and down the hall and into the kitchen and up the stairs. You will find the cat at the crossroads where he can keep an eye on everything. Now, what's a big cat? A lion's a big cat. What's an even bigger cat? A tiger. What's even bigger? A sphinx. And a sphinx is what you find at the crossroads. And the sphinx says, <clears throat> I'll let you pass if you can answer my question. And if you can't, I'm going to eat you. What is the question that the sphinx wants answered? What is the riddle of the Sphinx? Yes, sir? Okay. What walks on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three legs at night? And the answer is? Man, okay. <clears throat> so, now there's a whole bunch of philosophy involved here, okay? At the center of the world, the question is, what is man? And we don't really know the answer to it, because we don't have the Bible to tell us that the man is the image of God. But if you can't answer the question of the Sphinx, the Sphinx will kill you. <clears throat> now, who was it who was able to answer that question? Oedipus answered it, right? Oedipus answered the question of the Sphinx, and then he killed the Sphinx. So that's what the hero is supposed to do with the cross. When you come to the center of the cross, the hero isn't supposed to die. He's supposed to kill the monster. Okay? Or 
If your name is Theseus, what do you do? I better not take that off. I'll just use this over here. If you're Theseus, you've got to go down to the cross, to the center of things. And so you go down into the earth, working your way through the labyrinth until you come down here to the center. And there's the minotaur. Now, if the minotaur kills you, that's not much of a story, is it? Okay? You know? All right? So, you kill the minotaur. And then here at this cross area here at the center, you come back out and emerge victorious. There is a kind of death and resurrection here. But at the center of the death and resurrection event, you kill the enemy. The enemy doesn't kill you. What's, what's an amazing good news story about the hero getting killed at the center of things? <clears throat> that's, that's moronic as far as these Gentiles are concerned. Whether you're a Greek or a barbarian, any kind of Gentile, all the myths, whether they're Chinese myths or Japanese myths or American Indian myths or whatever the myth is, at the bottom of the labyrinth, and they all have labyrinth myths, you all have crossroads myths. The hero is the guy who kills the bad guy at the crossroads, not the guy who gets killed. Even to the extent to which they have dying and rising myths, you, uh, the hero ultimately has to be the one to do the killing, not the one to die. So this, <clears throat> unless we can get a little bit beyond it, the cross, the death of Jesus, looks crazy. This is not what the world hero is supposed to be like. Well, let's consider this just a little bit more. I want to I drop back and do something that's, that will lead us back to our passage. Uh, and so I'm going to tell you a different story. Let's hop out of 1 Corinthians. Okay? Let's leave the Sphinx behind for a minute and go back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, and it was empty, and it was dark. Three things there. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and God saw the light was good. Actually, light is the only thing God calls good. He calls the situation good day after day, which implies that each day is lighter than the one before in some profound sense. But light itself is the one thing he calls good. The light emerges from utter darkness when God made the world in the first place. When God made the world, it started out dark. And then it started to build up again, starting with light. All right? We've got to bear this in mind. Now, at the end of this first day, God saw that it was good, and then God said, let there be a firmament, and there was a firmament. And God, then God divided the land from the sea on the third day. And God saw that was good, and then God called the grain plants and the fruit trees to grow up out of the earth on the third day, and God saw that was good. And then we moved to the fourth day, and God broke up the firmament into the sun, moon, and stars and scattered them out, expanding the firmament from a, a shell to a tent. And God saw that was good. And I'm leaving something out. What was it? That between each one of those days, it gets dark again. Now, why is that? Why didn't God just make the world so that it goes from day one and then day two after 24 hours? That's how long those days were, by the way. And then day three and then day four. 
Why is there this dropping back down into darkness in between each day? Why? I have no idea why. But he did it that way. I do have an idea, but it has to do with the... It's complicated, so I'm not going to go into it. Okay? We have to notice that. That's one of the most important features of the text. That there is a kind of death and resurrection in between each day. Each day is better than the day before, but before that happens, everything goes down into darkness, and then it comes back up again. Well, then God decides to make his agent, and he sends the, the same Holy Spirit who has been moving during those seven days. Remember, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and it's the Spirit who is moving day by day, bringing this glorification each day more glorious than the one before. Darkness and then more glory. Darkness and then more glory. Darkness and then more glory. It's the Spirit who does that. On the sixth day, the Spirit of God enters into a ball of dirt. God makes a dirt man, then he puts a spirit in it. Okay, You people are all just dirt bags that have the spirit in them. Okay? Right. Hey, I didn't write the Bible. Now, the Spirit goes in, and what do human beings do? Do you just live one day after another, or do you close your eyes and go into darkness and sleep in between each day? Why is that? Why do you do this? What's going on? Well, you do it because you're made of world, and that's what the world does. The world goes to sleep, and the world is dark, and you go dark. You want to make the world dark? Close your eyes. It's dark. Okay? You can instantly go into darkness. And at night, you know what happens is every night, you think, man, I'm tired. It's been a long day. I am dead tired. And you just crash on the bed and you go to sleep and you wake up the next day and you've got more energy. Well, that used to be true. <laughs> For some of you, it probably still is. Now, and maybe after three cups of coffee, you've got more energy than you had the night before. Why is that? It's the way God made the world. And every day you have a little death and resurrection. New Testament says regarding those who Christians who have died, it says they've fallen asleep. And so this business of the world going out into darkness every night, at nighttime, and human beings going to sleep or going down into deep sleep or into comas or actually dying and being resurrected, that's all on a continuum. Little kinds of death big kinds of death, but they're all, we have to think of them in a line. Now, this is how God made the world. God made the world so that apart from sin, the way the world moves forward is by going down and then coming up better than before. And we do that, and we actually go to sleep and wake up on exactly the same clock as the sun. You know, you don't stay awake for 26 hours and then sleep for 13 and then be awake for 26 and sleep for 13. No, your, your rhythm of darkness and light is just the same as that of the world itself. You were made to match the world. How many of you have ever thought about that before? Many of you have never thought about that before. Yeah, see, that's why I'm here. All right. <laughs> just kidding. Now. When God decided to make a wife for Adam, 
before Adam had sinned. He'd say, Adam, stand still. This won't hurt a bit. And he just makes Eve. No, he sends Adam down into tardema, which is a Hebrew word, which means death sleep. You're way down close to death when you're in this thing. You can take a concordant study and look at the verb radam or this word tardema. And that's for those of you who care about Hebrew. But trust me, this is death sleep. I mean, you know, if I was just asleep and you pulled a rib out from my side, I'd wake up. <laughs> that's not what happened. Okay? He's, he is really down in this sleep situation here. But what happens is he wakes up and he's glorified because the woman is the glory of the man. Now, again, we want to ask why. Why does God feel the need to do it this way? Well, I can only say this because it's the only thing that makes sense to me. But if Adam had not gone to sleep and God had just pulled a rib out, closed him up, you know, given him a shot of anesthesia first, and then made the woman, she wouldn't be very different from Adam. But by putting Adam almost down to death and dividing him and then pulling both of them back up, he makes another kind of human being who is very mysteriously and weirdly different from the man. <laughs> Something men will never understand. Okay? That's kind of what's going on. And now I bring that up uh, because that's what the cross is. The cross is God saying, I have to take the world all the way back to zero and start over again. Now that is the really the biggest offense to the Greeks and to the Jews. What happened when Jesus was on the cross for three hours? Total darkness, you see. You've got to associate that with the first day of creation. Jesus pays for our sins, yes, and that's an important part of it. But another important part of it here, since he's talking about Greeks and everything else, is that God is canceling out all the wisdom of the Greeks. He's canceling out all the wisdom of the Jews and saying, we ought to start all over again and make a new creation. Now, that's the scandal of the cross because it means... <laughs> You don't have anything to contribute to this. <laughs> Everything you've ever done needs to be kind of wiped out so God can start again. In a very profound sense. Now, in another sense, all the things that are in the world for the preceding 4,000 years that have any, that are any good are transformed and brought into the kingdom. You know, the spoils of the Gentiles are brought into the kingdom. Uh, the wisdom of the Torah is transformed and brought into the kingdom. But in a very profound sense, the kingdom has to start again ex nihilo, out of nothing. And he actually says this uh, in, the pre in the following paragraph. We're going to go back to 1 Corinthians now. He says in verse 26 and following, Consider your call, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh. That is, the flesh in Paul means the old world. Okay? The, the world before the spirit is given. doesn't mean physical body. It connects to it, but it doesn't mean that. You know. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen foolish, moronic things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong, the base things of the world and the despised, 
God is chosen. Now, that's, that's getting at the idea that we have to make a new start. Go back to the beginning. We can't start from the strength of the world. We can't start from the wisdom of the Greeks as it has developed. We can't start from the traditions of the Jews as they've developed. We have to throw all that out and start with weak things and start over again. In fact, then he says in verse 28, the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that don't exist, he says. Now, he's referring to creation out of nothing. He says, God has chosen the nothingness to start over again, creation out of nothing. So that the foolish things, the weak things, are equivalent to starting ex nihilo. The things that don't even exist, in order that he may cancel out the things that do exist. The cross means God cancels out everything that human beings have ever accomplished. That's an offense. Now, I wouldn't like it if Jesus came and said, you know, all the books you've ever written, Jim, they're trash. I'm burning them all up and I'm starting over again. I'm going to pick some really stupid people out here, you know, people who are poor, people who can't read, and I'm going to start over with them. And your books, Through New Eyes and all the really wonderful stuff that you've written, um, I'm burning them all. They're no good. That would be kind of hard to swallow, you know. It would take the power of the Holy Spirit to make me say, okay, I'll join in with all these poor dumb people and start over again. But there's a sense in which that's exactly what he's saying here. That's the offense, okay. That, that's the offense of the cross, all right. That's half of it. Jewish culture is being wiped out. God is going to decreate the world. And he did decreate it on the cross. Everything got dark. And then in resurrection morning, as the sun came up, we have the first day of the new creation where there is let there be light. And as the light begins to shine and the women come to the tomb, we have the new light begins to come. But it only comes after everything else has been decreated. This is kind of a message to these Corinthians, you know. If you stop and think about it just practically, if that's the way the kingdom is, you can't really have any boasting, can you? (laughs) Because you don't have anything to boast of. You know, what's past was not prologue. What's past has been wiped out uh, in the strongest sense of an understanding of the new creation. Well, that's, that's largely the offense to the Gentiles and to the Greeks. Okay, your wisdom, your philosophy, your culture, forget it. We're starting over again. We're going to have a regeneration. You got the book of Genesis where... These are the generations of somebody. These are the generations of somebody. And this, fathers and sons, fathers and sons, that's what the book of Genesis is about, fathers and sons, all the way down, what comes out of each father. Now we got a new generation, starting with Jesus. And it's just like starting the world over again. And that's the, that's the radical language he uses here. It's starting over again. And I pointed out to you, one of the problems in the Corinthian church, I mean, most of their problems stem from the fact that they, they are starting over again. And if we're starting over again in a new world, then do the old laws about sex still apply? How about the old laws about food? Do they still apply? Uh, 
What about law courts? What do we do if we're really starting over again? So Paul is setting up, you know, the whole thing he's got to discuss in this book, and he starts off by saying, yeah, you really are starting over again. The whole world is. But that's not the offense to the Jews necessarily, because they've understood this is going to happen. The offense to the Jews, and by now we're going to have to talk about the unbelieving Jews, those who don't convert, is the preaching of Christ crucified. It's not the fact of Christ crucified. It's the preaching of Christ crucified. And in the few minutes that remain, I have to tell you interesting stories. Hope, hope we can understand this together. All the cultures of the world <clears throat> have a teaching that the king must die for the people. That's everywhere. Uh, it's there in Greek society. You can just read The King Must Die. It's the title of a book that talks about it. Uh, you can look at it in Latin America. They take a man, one of the captives in war, and they set him aside to be king for a week or king for a month or for some sacred period of time. They let him have all the women he wants, all the food he wants. He has to live in the palace. And at the end of that time, after he has fully acquired all the manna and the magic of kingitudinousness and been moved fully into that basilic slot of being the king, then they take him up on top of the pyramid and pull his heart out and offer it to the divine hummingbird, and that's the sun. And, uh, you know, the king has died for his people, and he's taken all the wrath, and now the crops will grow. Problem is, next month you got to do it again. The Aztecs got to the point where they felt like they had to do it two or three times a day until Cortez and our valiant Spanish warriors put a stop to it. All right? Um, which, you know, all the people who were being killed day by day were very grateful for. For some reason, the Mexicans don't seem to be grateful for Cortez anymore, and I think most of you people wouldn't be alive if Cortez hadn't put a stop to this. Well... All societies have this, and the reason it comes about is because in societies, people wind up at conflict with each other. And as conflict multiplies and grows more and more intense, people want to find a scapegoat and make him pay for all the sins. And that's part of what happens with Jesus. And when societies get very tense and all of their anger and aggression, which is usually against each other, suddenly turns against somebody else who is annoying to both of them. Then they kill him. And then all the people who are angry with each other get reconciled. They have this sense of peace that comes about because they've joined hands to kill this guy. Now that happens in the Gospels. Herod and Pilate became friends, and they hated each other beforehand, when they killed Jesus. Let me tell you that story again. Two groups of people are furious at each other. They're about ready to go to war with each other. And then some guy comes along and condemns them both. His name is Jesus. He says to Herod, you vixen, you female fox, I don't have anything to do with you. And he basically says, Caesar, your days are numbered. I'll submit for now, but hey, the fifth monarchy is coming. And he says to the Jewish Sanhedrin, you guys are dead. You're demonized. There's demons all over your, your uh, synagogues. And then he comes to the city, and he's made king. And the people put down their garments on the ground, and he walks 
on his donkey on those garments, which is to say, he walks on top of them. They say, we will carry you on our backs and hold you up as kings. Then they take branches down off the trees and they put them on the ground. So Jesus walks symbolically. He's walking across the tops of the trees. He's a heavenly king. He's up in the air. His donkey is moving across the tops of the trees. And everybody's celebrating. That's what this means. And they hail him as their king. And they move him into the king slot. And then he comes before Pilate. And he says, my kingdom's not of this world. And Pilate's terrified. He knows all about the gods and these other kingdoms that are up there in the sky. And he doesn't want to do anything. But he's forced to put Jesus on the cross. But he puts Jesus of Nazareth, the priest of the Jews. No, king of the Jews. So this is the way it's supposed to be. You know, one man, it's expedient for one man to die for the people. And in all of these cultures, and Jews have gotten caught up in this now, you get the guy who offends everybody, you kill him, and then Herod and Pilate become friends, and everybody feels, you know, a sense of peace. Social peace results. Now, the essential thing that has to happen, and this is what Rene Girard, who's done most of the work on this, talks about, is that after we've killed this guy, we want to cover it up and pretend that it never happened. Never talk about it. Okay, yeah, that happened, but we won't talk about it. And you know, if nobody talks about something in two generations, nobody remembers it. I was talking with uh, uh, someone about Japan yesterday, and she was saying the Japanese are never taught in school about how they treated the Chinese, about how they treated uh, the Koreans. And the Japanese don't think they ever did anything wrong. They don't understand why the Koreans don't like them. The Russians are the same. I go to Russia and... They can't figure out why the Poles don't like them. <laughs> well, I can tell them why the Poles don't like them. You know? But they're never taught that in school, so they don't know. And if you cover up the primal murder, and all these societies have these primal scapegoat murders, you cover it up and never talk about it, it only exists in very faint memory. And usually what happens is, because the whole, this is very strange, because the whole society feels peace after they've murdered this guy, sooner or later somebody comes along and says, you know, whoever that guy was, he brought about peace for a while, and so they wind up making him in kind of a God status. Now, the offense of the preaching of the cross is exactly this. What did the Jews say in the book of Acts when they grabbed the apostles and threw them into prison? You keep bringing this man's blood back on us. It's in Acts chapter 5, 28. Hey, this is supposed to be covered up. You aren't supposed to talk about this. It's the preaching of it that's offensive. This was an innocent man and you killed him. Yeah, we know he was innocent and we killed him. But look, look at all the benefits. Herod and Pilate are friends now. Everything's calmed down. And you keep bringing this up. You keep stirring up society. You won't let it rest. Acts 5.28 We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. Behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Well, they said his blood be on us and on our children. But now that it's happened, don't do it. Now this is a real social offense. I want you to understand, you know, everything in Jerusalem is calm and peaceful now. 
Jesus' death has brought about peace. I say again, Herod and Pilate are at peace. Herodians and the Romans are getting along. Everybody feels pretty good. All the conflict has been resolved. It's all been psychologically taken off of them. And then the disciples come around and say, this man was innocent. You all murdered him. All of us murdered him. And you're disrupting the peace. Because it's a false peace. This kind of scapegoat peace just means that in another generation we'll have to find somebody else to kill. By bringing this up, by preaching the cross, they scandalize the Jews and they won't leave it alone. And they are announcing to the Jews, you murdered an innocent man and you're not going to get any benefit from it unless you repent. You can't just cover it up. That's what they want to do. They want to cover it up. But instead of covering it up, the apostles keep bringing it up. And waving it in front of their face. You did this. When are you going to repent? Well, in the, in the modern world, as I say, the Japanese, they want to cover up what they did to the Koreans. The Russians, they want to cover up what they did in Eastern Europe. While I was in Russia this last time, oh, I'm out of time. There won't be any questions. When I was in Russia this last time, there was an article in the St. Petersburg Times, which is an English-language newspaper. I don't want you to think that I can read Russian newspapers. I mean, I could let you think that, but it'd be a lie. Um, it was all about what the Russian army did when they liberated Eastern Europe. Well, they had the same program of uh, ravishing every woman they could find. This was regarded as a tactic of war. The commander said, be sure... Uh, that you that you abuse every woman that you find to punish them and to torture the people that they captured and so forth. Well, the Russians don't want to hear this. They don't want to be reminded of it. They've never apologized for it. Instead, they took all those countries over there. They used to take everything out. They would go into Poland and they would remove whole bridges that were across rivers and take them back to Russia and put them over on one of their rivers. <laughs> That's what the Russians did when they were in charge of Eastern Europe. But they never talk about it. It's covered up. And our Russian students in our seminary, they, they think that Russia has been really great. They don't, understand, they don't understand why the Poles and the Lithuanians and the Estonians don't want to uh, resent Russia. I mean, even Solzhenitsyn in his old age and his dotterage uh, is going around saying all these countries were much better off under the rule of Russia the true in third Rome. They sure weren't better off. But you cover it up and then no one remembers it. It never happened. You don't repent of it. You don't face up to it. You cover it up. And that's what, that's what the situation here is. That's the scandal of preaching the cross. Preaching the cross is to continually remind the Jews, you did this. You can't cover it up. Now this is... Because this stuff happens every day, you see. What Gerard says in his writings, he says, preaching the innocence of Jesus and preaching the cross revolutionizes the world because it validates the victim. Instead of covering up the people that you murdered and victimized, now it's, it's going to take thousands of years, and even now we're only beginning to do it. But we begin to have an instinct that says, you know, Maybe that victim was innocent. 
and we stand up for the victim. And uh, it's a long-term process to shift our thinking this way and to expose the works that are done in darkness. But Jesus says on the last day, all the stuff that's covered up and the kind of stuff we're talking about is going to be exposed. That's what the cross does centrally. The most innocent man in the history of the world, you murdered, and we're not going to let you forget it. You can't cover it up. You have to face it, and you have to repent. So that's the scandal that he's talking about here. It's not just the scandal. Uh, It is the scandal that we were sinners and Jesus died for us. It's also the scandal that we murdered this man. As the hymn says, I crucified thee. And we have to face it. Okay. So maybe tonight we'll come back and say a little bit more about this, and then we'll go into some of the other parts of the book. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we confess before you that we are guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. Help us to understand that better and to face it, not to cover it up by living lives that pretend as if this didn't happen and only occasionally thinking about it, but understanding that it was because of this that you started a new world. Help us not to live in that old world and not to be impressed with the wisdom of that old world, but to live in the new world and seek the new wisdom that comes out of the new resurrection life that you have brought out of the cross in this new creation. Now we ask that you bless us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.